This week's episode is brought to you by ISTE. At ISTE Live 23, on June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. Get inspired about teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. And then bring that joy back to your school. Register now at isteconference.org. Robert Talbert is a math professor who's been teaching for decades. And like most educators, he used to grade papers and tests and give them back to students marked up with a letter grade, often in red Sharpie. But about seven years ago, something happened in a calculus class that he was teaching at Grand Valley State University that made him rethink his whole approach. Well, really, it was one student, um, one student who came in, not a math major, I believe she was a biology major, but loved math, was very excited about being in calculus. Uh, First few weeks of the class, she was just super engaged, uh, a leader in the class. I mean, helping other people understand what I was saying and just kind of being almost like a teaching assistant uh, and very, very bright. The student, it turns out, was someone who just didn't test well. And it showed because on the first test that she took, I believe she scored so low that she knocked herself out of contention for an A in the class because that's how it works, right? I mean, you take... You take these exams in class, and they all average together. And if you do poorly enough on one of them, it almost kind of negates the good work you might do on any of the other ones, even though you might still be learning and still be growing. So when that low grade came back emblazoned in red pen on the first exam, Talbert says the student's whole energy level in the class changed. And she was very demotivated. Uh, Now she could max out at a B, and so her engagement in classes really went down, really went south. Then came the second test, and things didn't go any better. By that time, she had knocked herself out of contention for a B because she did so poorly on it. And just gradually, you know, these quizzes and tests and timed assessments and the way it all fits together with averaging and points and everything else just wore her down. And soon she was acting out in class. I mean, she was just like saying out loud, like, I don't see why any of this matters. This is all pointless or just really uh, quite, you know, provocative in class. Uh, And I would try to, to calm her down a little bit. It just wasn't happening. And eventually she just dropped from the class and just vanished. And I've never seen her again. The moment led Talbert to decide to move away from the grading systems that most educators just take for granted. This is just the, the, the final straw for me, because I do remember all of us instructors know that sometimes you'll overhear students talking about their classes, but they're not talking about their classes. They're talking about the grades they're making in the class. And there's a big difference between those things. I'd be riding the bus and I'd overhear students saying, like, well, I've got to get this on my fine, my midterm to get this on the final exam and get this grade in the class and just like playing this game with points and almost no engagement with the material, but all this engagement with the points. And it becomes just about playing games with points. And I never liked this. I never liked this, but I didn't really have any inkling that you could do it differently. But finally, when I had this one student, it was a, I, I was, I swore to myself at that moment, it was a December, it was the end of a fall semester, that I would never use points-based grading again. There was one huge problem with this pledge he made to himself, though. If you don't use the usual grading system on assignments, what do you do? 
And I had really no idea what I was going to replace it with, but there had to be something, and there's got to be something better than this. And I'm just simply no longer going to use this. It's working against my goals as a professional in this uh, in, in higher education because I, it's killing the growth of my students, of my best students even. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge. And on this week's episode, we're going to hear what happened next for this professor and his quest to find a better way to grade and motivate his students. As Talbert discovered, there's a whole world of so-called alternative grading systems. So many, in fact, that he ended up co-writing a whole book about them. And that book is due out this summer. It's called Grading for Growth, a guide to alternative grading practices that promise authentic learning and student engagement in higher education. He co-wrote it with another math professor at Grand Valley State, David Clark. And the two of them have been publishing an email newsletter about alternative grading, also called Grading for Growth. I recently connected with Talbert to hear what he uses in his classes now and why he argues that reforming how grading works is key to increasing student engagement. And it turns out that grades weren't always the way they are now. So I started by asking Talbert, what did educational institutions do before grades as we know them were invented? A very old school, you know, 16th century and before. So the first six or 700 years of higher education, uh, about the first 70% of higher education's lifespan, there was really no such thing as a grade. It was a you would go to university and you would study for four years and you'd go to lectures and go to your discussion groups, basically the old uh, Oxford style, where you'd meet up with the professor in his chambers and with your friends and have these discussions. And maybe you went to lecture, maybe you didn't. Uh, And then at the end of the four years, you would just have a giant oral exam over everything, Uh, very much like the PhD dissertation defenses we have now. In fact, those are holdovers from those, uh, those days. And you would be uh, evaluated by a committee of uh, insiders and some outsiders, some community members. And if they felt that you did well enough, you were allowed to graduate. And otherwise, I guess you weren't allowed to graduate. I don't think there's no (laughs) nobody really knows what happens to the people who didn't pass those oral exams. Gradually over time, uh, there were some concerns about that uh, system, but there were no grades as such. It was, I guess you could say pass-fail would be the grade, but it's like one single pass-fail for your entire four years, one assessment. Talk about a high-stakes exam, but but oral, but oral, oral so that right. people could work through it with you if you, uh, you know, were close but not quite there, but then they could talk it through with you to see what you knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not totally sure how often that actually happened, but theoretically it could have done. Uh, some, some of those exams had to do with translating uh, from like the Old Testament Greek. And so maybe there was a slight written part to it as well. But it was certainly nothing like we see today with points and ABCDF and a 4.0 GPA and one and done assessments per class. The whole idea of having exams per class per course you took didn't happen until you know, the 18th or 17th century. There were some concerns about whether this committee was really impartial. Uh, oftentimes it would be, uh, you know, if, you, if you were a prominent person in the community, you could perhaps pay to have people of your favorite choice on these committees, and so you would get passed through a little bit of a great inflation, if, as it were, at the time. Um, 
so there was a little bit of a push to give professors more oversight over the exams. But it was only then that you began to see exams taking place in a class. Uh, I think it was first moved to an every, like, two, two exams rather than one, like two years in, and then you have the final thing at the end. Uh, and then it gradually became every course you took had an exam. And, uh, but it was not really until around the middle of the night of the, uh, sorry, towards the end of the 18th century that anything like a mark was put on any kind of student work. That uh, the first known example of that was at Yale, I believe it was in the 1780s, and the mark wasn't a point; it was just descriptive adjectives like very good, not quite so great, but still okay, and not okay. Basically, <laughs> three three adjectives, adjectival phrases that describe students' work, and it still wasn't points; it still wasn't one and done assessments; it still wasn't averaging because you can't average adjectives together. And it just kind of evolved over time. And eventually, we did not really arrive at our current uh, conception of points-based ABCDF GPA-style grading until almost the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, it's really only about 100 years old. Mm. Yeah, and, and yet, yeah, we think about them so much. And what, what do you think has been so attractive as those grades emerged and really became the norm um, why do you think those that stuck versus other systems that might have evolved? Well, it really has to do with two things. It has to do with standardizing uh, reporting about students' academic progress. And this, this really began to take hold in the mid-19th century in America, because at that time you had a lot of immigration, a lot of mobility because of westward expansion. And it used to be the case back in the very early days that if you were a kid, uh, you would go to a school and you would stay in that school because you never moved from any place that you lived. You would stay in the same school for your whole lifespan, and there was no need for different schools to communicate with each other about how a particular student is doing. As families became more mobile in the 19th century because of all these social pressures, you might have a kid that grows up, that immigrates to New York and then moves to Missouri and then moves to California. <laughs> and so you have a little bit more of a modern uh uh, uh, situation very similar to what we have today, where students you would go to a student goes to college. They don't go to a college. They perhaps go to like several, maybe even a half a dozen different colleges, and it's just a patchwork of of courses put together. And so in that case, you really need a standardized way to say this student has done excellent work or just good work or average work, and that's kind of where grades, where the the, the, the standardized idea of a grade came from. And another. Uh, 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 factor that pushed this was sort of the early 20th century industrial revolution obsession with scientific measurement of everything, like all the things had to be scientifically measured. This is where we first began to see IQ scores, for example, begin to emerge, and they actually, in fact, emerged from very similar schools of thought, that you know, intelligence can be measured and we can create a standardized measure for intelligence. And uh, tailorization and, and, and efficiency movements uh, gave rise to uh, uh, these simple, seemingly simple, numerical scores that looks like a perfectly objective measure. Although in the book, David Clark and I explained these are not objective measures by any sense of the imagination. Uh, but it looks objective, it looks scientific, and that really resonated with the, uh, the zeitgeist of the time back in the teens and 20s of the 20th, 20th century. 
No, and it's interesting. We uh, regular listeners will will note that last week we reran an episode that we did on the history of kind of IQ testing gifted education, where we looked a lot at at Lewis Terman, who kind of invented the modern IQ test or the way it's done in a lot of ways. And and it was all about that ethos that you're talking about of like, you know, that yes, you could put a number on, on something as nuanced as um, you know, how smart someone is. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It has the appearance of a scientific measurement and that was good enough for that time. There's lots of discussion of equity in education these days. And so I was interested to note that that you argue, just like you just mentioned, you argue in the book that, um, quote, traditional grading violates any reasonable standard of equity, unquote, like you're that grading is not equitable. What makes you say that? Well, we're referencing there a book uh, by Joe Feldman called Grading for Equity. That's a little old that predates our book by several years. And in that book, uh, Feldman lays out a number of criteria for what might be what might constitute equity in some sense. Uh, I would say I would boil it down to saying, you know, grading rewards assessment taking. It rewards test taking. It is not, grades are not a measure of intelligence. They're a measure of your ability to take an assessment about something, okay? And so who benefits from this? I mean, who is best situated to take uh, high-pressure tests? Well, it's kids often from uh, highly resourced educational systems, um, it's kids who uh, can't afford the, the assistance they need to take these tests. Uh, it's, it's typically you know, a particular group of students who are best situated or better situated than anybody else to take these assessments and get these grades. Um, that's not to say that other kids can't test well or can't do well. We firmly believe that every, every student can and should grow. But the way that we set up our grading isn't about growth. It's about a snapshot in time of your ability to take a single one-and-done assessment on several different occasions and then average them all together. And fundamentally, uh, David Clark was their author, did a great job of writing that part of the book. And uh, I would say, you know, it boils down to grades are tied to assessments and your ability to perform on them. And some kids are better situated than others to do this. Whereas assessment of student progress that's based on a feedback loop instead, where they're getting helpful feedback, there's there's uh, markings on it that describe progress. Uh, there's ability to uh, retake without penalty. All these things we lay out in our book, we call it the four pillars model, uh, four specific uh, distinctives about equitable grading systems. All of these benefit every person equally, uh, for the most part. And there are some there are some questions out there about true uh, true equity. I don't, maybe that's an asymptotic thing that we approach but never quite reach in this world. But uh, certainly, I, I think the way that we do grades now, again, it is not about how much you've grown, what your trajectory is, or how smart you are. It's about your ability to perform under pressure at a single point in time. And not every kid, not every grown-up uh, has the ability to do that as well as the others. That's why that's why equity really is violated. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And, and, you know, it seems like a lot of the folks that end up in the seat you're in as a professor are the ones who are good. We're good at that game, if you will. And so you, you and, and many others out there, um, in the professorship, you know, in the education world may, may not even realize to the extent that that is, that is true. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who aren't good at it, it's a survivor bias thing the whole way. 
uh, it was good enough for us, and so it's good enough for our, our students. But how many people did we lose along the way? I mean, how many people could have been college professors, uh, really great college professors, uh, but just got washed out because of the way we grade people? We'll never know. So what does alternative grading look like in practice? We'll hear about it after the break. For more than four decades, the ISTE conference has been recognized as one of the world's most influential education events. It's where educators and education leaders gather to engage in hands-on learning, share best practices, and hear from the brightest minds from the world of education and beyond. At ISTE Live 23, June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. From real-world lessons that empower students, to groundbreaking ways to collaborate, to leading-edge edtech tools, you'll find out how to lead next-gen learning during hundreds of strategy-packed sessions. Rediscover your passion for teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. Then bring that joy back to your school. Register today at isteconference.org. So you describe some alternatives to traditional grades um, throughout the book. Could you walk us through maybe your favorite and like just, you know, spell out like what it's like? Because I think a lot of people are are like you were in the beginning of like, okay, if, if you start to buy that, it's not ideal. But what do you do? What do you do if you're not giving letter grades on assignments? <laughs> Before I would spell out any details, I would just say any listener who's kind of trying to get their head around this, all you got to do is just look outside school and you'll see it everywhere. Uh, you know, we, we, when my son, uh, who's 14 now, was a little kid, six or seven years old, he was taking a swim class uh, from my university and he got a report card uh, and it had no points on it. It had no grades on it. It just had like levels. Okay, like here's like, uh, we had numbers on your levels and you, uh, the instructor would like circle the level that he had completed and use some highlighters to show like what skill he's good at doing, what skill he needs to continue to work on, and uh, here's where he's at. And I saw that, and I thought, that's just brilliant. I mean, everywhere in life, other than school, we are, if there's an assessment to be done, whether it's, for example, you're in a job and you're getting an annual performance review, or if you're a professor and you're getting, you're up for tenure, you're getting a portfolio review, or, you know, you're, uh, you're a musician, you're trying to learn a song, and you don't get a point attached to your performance in a, in a practice session. You have to engage in a feedback loop. You do something, you give it a try, you get some feedback uh, relative to uh, professional, you know, appropriately scaled professional standards uh, from a trusted third party. Uh, and then you try to make sense of what you just got as far as feedback goes, and then you incorporate all that into a next iteration. And then that loop just keeps looping until what you have produced is good enough. Uh, and so everywhere you look, <laughs> this is how people are assessed and how people learn. All human learning that's significant is based on feedback loops, uh, except in school. It seems like, but we're trying to change that. And one of the, my, I guess my favorite alternative form, uh, the one that I came to after that episode with my student, and I still stick with it today, is called specifications grading. Uh, this was, uh, I guess you could say, invented by Linda Nilsson, who's a legendary uh, faculty developer and thought leader about uh, teaching and learning. And specifications grading, uh, in your course, uh, you set up like, a list of learning objectives, things that students should be able to do by the time they finish the course. 
Um, and you tie the grade in the course to just simply how many of those things they have accomplished. So perhaps you have, you're teaching a, a, a writing class, and you might say uh, you have different uh, what Linda would call bundles of work set up. Like you need to do a, a research paper, and you need to do an expository paper, and you, we're going to have the ability to do like a creative writing type of assignment or something like that. And uh each work that you do, each aspect of work, maybe each little bundle, each of those little three bundles would consist of several specific items of work, maybe a paper and an outline of that paper and uh, an oral presentation of that paper, let's say. So each little bundle has a number of things tied to it. And if you complete all the things in the bundle at a satisfactory level uh, relative to some standards that you set up, which we call specifications, that's why it's called specifications grading, then you have earned full credit, if you will, on that bundle. And say to get an A in the class, you would need to complete all three bundles. To get a B in the class, you need to complete two out of the three. To get a C, you need to complete one out of the three. So every piece of individual work is graded essentially pass-fail, uh, just simply on the basis of whether or not it meets these quality standards, these specifications that you've set up in the class. And then the course grade, the course grade, which we still use, we have not gotten rid of course grades yet. Uh, the course grade is a simply based on how much work you do that meets specifications. There's no points. Uh, there's no averaging. There's no partial credit. Everything is graded pass-fail. But the, the trick of it is everything that you do can be redone if you're not happy with the result. Okay, so maybe you, maybe you do an oral presentation and it doesn't go so well. Rather than getting like a 72 out of 100 and you just have to live with that 72 out of 100, uh, I would give you feedback that says, uh, you know, here's what you did well. Here's some stuff that needs working on. Let's do this again next week. And you get another shot at it. And you just keep looping through until your oral presentation is good enough. And so what this allows you to do as a student is essentially select the grade that you want to earn. So you come in and say, I really think that I could get an A in the class if I just put in the effort for it. Then you know exactly what you got to do. You're getting feedback on your progress the entire way. And you're supported by the professor. On the other hand, maybe you're perfectly happy with a B in the class. And that's, you know, we, like, we try to encourage people to shoot high. But maybe that's all you want. And if that's the case, you can pick one of those two bundles to do and just ignore the other one. And so it puts the student firmly in control of their own destiny in that course. And the professor is there as a guide to give feedback to the students and to set up just the environment and the opportunities to just keep on trying until they're happy. You know, I think that swim lesson example is really interesting here. So you either you can either tread water for 30 seconds or you can't. Um, or you can either swim eight laps or you can't or whatever it is. And so, um, you know, but it doesn't mean you get one chance to swim. And then if you don't get those, uh, then you, you, it's, it's it. Right. Right. So, you know, you would, uh, you know, do you swim, you know, 10 laps, you know, perfectly well, but then you, you uh, can't even get on the diving board because you're like terrified of something and you do one other thing like reasonably well, you would end up with like C in the class. Okay. That means you're, that means you're perfectly adequate, except there's certain things that you simply can't do. And it seems like it's a false positive to say a person passes a class while having gaping holes in essential background, like being able to jump off a diving board. Mm -hmm. No, it's interesting. And, and I think it is, it is a very, you know, even just this idea that students could, 
you know, opt out of a certain section of the class. It's like a, it's, it's kind of jarring to think of it as, you know, this, this idea, um, when, um, you know, the system that we have now, it's what everyone's used to. It is what everyone's used to, except when you get out of school. I mean, when you look at everywhere else outside of higher education or secondary education, it's perfectly normal uh, for uh, for a person to say, uh, you know, I'm going to, I know what the standards are going to be. And, you know, maybe even in a class like this, you you as the instructor could say, you can't just totally opt out of the creative writing paper. You got to do something with the creative writing paper. But just like a bare minimum is all, you know, you, you have perfect, you have complete uh, control over what you accept as acceptable and, and a minimum baseline of work. But everywhere we look outside of, outside of school, <laughs> people are being assessed in this way. I mean, you, as a, as an adult human being, you always pick what you want to learn in life. Okay, uh, for better or for worse, nobody forces this stuff on you. Uh, there are some things that we end up having to learn that we'd rather not have to learn, like how to fix your car, for example, if you're if you can't afford to have a mechanic and you got something going wrong with it. Uh, but still, you know, there it's not like school. We're not graded on this, e- even within school. It's not like this. Uh, if I, as a as a researcher, written a, a research paper, for example, and I submit it to a journal. Uh, it's my choice to submit that to a journal in some sense. I mean, I have to because that's part of my job is to do research. Uh, and I get in trouble with my employer if I don't do a lot of research, don't do a minimum threshold of research. But when I submit a paper to a journal, it doesn't come back with a number on it. Okay. It doesn't come back with like an 82. It comes back with, uh, uh accepted or a minor revision or major revision or just like get out of here, you know, don't ever submit this again, you know, type of thing, which I've gotten before. And you get that attached with feedback. And what you're supposed to do as a, as a writer and as a researcher is take the feedback and improve it and submit it again and just keep doing this until they like your paper or until you give up one or the other. This is how the world works. And it's, it's not how school works, but it's how the world works. You know, this is so interesting. You know, you talk in the book about how it, in this example you're saying where there's not a – where you get a chance to revise. Like the, the feedback comes to you as a student and then – and so the the mark instead of ABC, um, DF is uh, – in some of these models, it is either complete or not yet. And you talk about the shift, shift in focus when it's um, complete and not yet. You know, you mentioned earlier students talking about grades. How do students kind of talk and conceptualize it when it's in this other model where complete and not yet versus A, B, C, D, E, F? Yeah, so it's an interesting shift in mindset because what students begin to start talking about is like their work is not a finished product anymore. They see themselves and their work as a work in progress as long as the course is running. And this is a critical change in direction for higher education. Uh, If you take a, like in the old traditional format, like I used to do, you take an exam and you get a 63 on it, that's it. Okay, you have to work around that 63 for the entire rest of the class. Whereas now, even if I don't really do timed exams anymore, I mean, it's, it's very detail-oriented, and I don't want to get into that right now necessarily. But if you take a, a timed assessment and it gets marked not yet, you have to ask yourself, what was missing? What do I need to do now in order to make this complete? And this is a, this is a growth mindset shift that is absolutely essential, and it's a, it's a powerful change in the way students think about their work, is that it is a work in progress. Like, I'm here 
because I don't know things. Okay, I mean, I'm taking a class because I I don't know how to do you know differential equations or whatever. Instead, I'm going to work on this material and take these assessments and do this homework. And if I need to keep working on it, if I made a mistake, I can fix that mistake as long as I'm willing to sort of think about it and put in the work to do it. Uh, and that that makes students much greater owners of their mistakes, first of all, and of their work, generally speaking. It just makes them very strong thinkers uh, because they have to think about what was missing rather than, well, I guess I'm going to have to make 100 on the next test. I want to be in the class because I got a 60 on the first test. Now, I'm, I am curious, how do instructors who hear this and may think of, wow, how do I actually do this, though, when revise, you know, it, it, in the old model, there's an event of a test or an exam, and then the, the the professor grades it once. Grading is already a time-consuming thing and giving revi- uh, any comments. But now it sounds like there's a chance for the student to go this do this again and again. How does the instructor find the time, and is this more time-consuming in the end? For me, it comes out to be about the same. Uh, it doesn't save me any time necessarily, but it's very quick to grade a single student's piece of work if all you're doing is comparing it, uh, pass, fail, yes, no, complete, not yet, whatever binary uh, scale you want to use, against a standard. Like I can open up a, if I'm teaching an upper level math class where there's a lot of proof, mathematical proofs that are being written, I can pretty much open up a student's proof and tell within moments if it's going to be good enough. The rest of the time, I'm just going to spend thinking about the details. And uh, so I don't have to split hairs anymore about whether that proof or if it's a test problem or, a, or an application in differential equations or whatever. Um, I don't have to split hairs thinking about, okay, is this a 6 out of 12? Is it an 8 out of 12? Is it a 0 out of 12? Is it a 2 out of 12? It's, it's incredible when you start tracking your time and doing the math on this, just how much time a person spends on a single student trying to allocate 12 points. Even if you have a rubric with you, which most people don't, uh, it, it can still, I mean, it comes down sometimes minutes per student. And if you have 100 students, you know, that's, that's a possibly three hours on a single problem for a single class. Whereas you can look straight at the work if you're using a binary or three-level or four-level rubric. Uh, we've got examples of all of, of two-level, three-level, four-level rubrics and don't recommend anything more complicated than four levels in the book. Uh, very easy to look at this work and categorize it real quickly. Stick the mark on it, like pass, not yet, or EMRN, as we described in one other system in the book. And uh, be done with it in just seconds and recoup some of that other time by actually leaving some real feedback that students could really use, not like a big X through something or an exclamation point. (laughs) I used to grade in Sharpie. I mean, that was horrible, right? It was so intimidating. It's like I was trying to really take it out on students. So instead of splitting hairs on points, we use simple, simple uh, marking systems based on very small, very small-scale rubrics, two, three, four levels, and then reinvest the time giving verbal feedback. And it it comes out to be about the same, honestly, Uh, especially when you think, at least in math, I know, and maybe it's true in other disciplines, a lot of times students make the same errors, like, uh, from across the class. And so you can actually save some time, like, I keep by keeping, say, a text file open off to the side that has, like, this one response to a common mistake, and you just copy-paste it, and it, it takes no time at all. So... First of all, the the grading part of it itself 
actually is not that much, I find it to be no less work uh, than, than traditional grading. And the work itself is a lot more satisfying because I'm not screwing around thinking about how many points somebody should get when I don't really even care how many points they get. What I want to know is, are they growing? Are they learning from the mistake? And then two, um, you know, the, the, the process of giving reassessments can be limited. Like you can, you can limit the number of reassessments that a student gets. You can limit the frequency with which a student reassesses. I mean, you don't have to just allow a free-for-all on reassessments if you want to. Uh, for example, in my classes, students get to reassess twice a week, period, on, any, on anything they want to, but only twice a week. And so it keeps, a, keeps the, uh, the grading load down to a, a nice, you know, nobody likes grading. I mean, so it's always kind of a burden, but it's, it's, a, it's a doable burden that I can, I can schedule into my week and not lose my life in the process. Now, you know, obviously you're a proponent of, of, you know, shaking things up with grading and not doing the traditional system, but you still in the book, I noticed, acknowledge that some things are good about the current system. Uh, Quote unquote good. Yeah. (laughs) I guess what, what, if anything, what is lost in, um, if there was a, wholesale shift to some of these ideas that you're talking about. Well, yeah, you know, the biggest thing, the biggest sticking point uh, would be the standardization that I mentioned a little earlier. You know, um, if you ever, if you're a faculty member and you sit on one of these committees whose job it is to decide whether a student's course at University X should get full credit at University Y, uh, this becomes very difficult to do if you're not totally sure about the grading system that went on behind the scenes there. Uh, you, uh, so you, you do lose a bit of transferability, I would say. On the other hand, you don't really have, you have pr- kind of the same problems now with traditional grading. I mean, when I, I have sat on these committees uh, several times and I'll see a student coming in with a calculus grade of B, for example, and I have no idea what that B represents. And the fact that the person might have used traditional grading doesn't really give me any extra information. Uh, so I, I don't know if that's actually a, a, an alternative grading problem. I think that might have to do with uh, a, another level of the grading system, which is the letter grade system that we use, which we do not attempt to tackle in the book. That, that's not going anywhere anytime soon, I, I don't believe, although some universities are making a run at it. Um, so you, you do lose the sort of the one of the original uh, purposes of traditional grading, which was to be able to communicate something meaningful between two different educational organizations about a single student. Uh, potentially, you lose that, and that, that would be that would that's something that you know as, as this whole movement moves forward, you, know, you got to think about this because it's good that students should be able to unbundle their education and take like a course from. You know, down the road university and a course from the community college and maybe a maybe a MOOC somewhere that offers credit. I don't know. So to, to patch things together and eventually bring it all together in a degree from Grand Valley State, for example, uh, it's good that students should be able to be mobile like that. I think that's a that's an overall good, but it does require some care when it comes to the grading uh, process by which we certify these students as being competent in their coursework. You note that there are surprising side effects. <laughs> to switching to alternative grading systems. Um, one of them is that um, the distribution of grades um, 
often change. Can you talk about this a little bit? Sure. I mean, I've, we don't have data on this, but we have tons of anecdotes because David Clark and I have been doing this for, for years. And definitely uh, you don't get a normal distribution in, in this in, in any form of uh, alternative grading that we've ever tried. What you get is something super bimodal. Like students who would normally get an A in a class in a traditional system would often get an A in an alternative grading system, but not always. Because sometimes students get A's in a class, it turns out, because they're false positives. It's like a type one error. You know, when you 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 think that the student actually has A level knowledge, but actually what they've all they've been able to do is like game the system and earn the right amounts of points in one place or another. Uh, that goes away, and so students who it, it tends to eliminate false positives. Okay, it actually increases. We haven't talked about the quote unquote rigor of a course. Uh, I'm not totally sure what that means, but if it means just like the overall legitimacy academically of a course, I feel like it makes a course more rigorous because you're just getting better data. Uh, you're getting direct observations of student work. And that, that's the whole reason I, I switched. I mean, I told that story a little earlier, uh, but, you know, honestly, I, I switched and stuck with uh, specifications grading. And later I tried ungrading and sort of hybrids of all these, mainly because I just want better data. Uh, I, I'm, I'm tired of getting crappy data about student learning. It's like bad experiments one after the other. I, I want something real that I can sink my teeth into. Uh, so students typically will, oftentimes students who have A's in a traditional class will get A's in an alternative class. Students who get B's in traditional classes for the right reasons often end up with A's in the class because they often B students are, they're, they're making good progress. Uh, they have done a lot of things right, but they just need a little bit of feedback loop action to get themselves up to the next level and they get it in, in, uh, in uh, this kind of case. Uh, students who skate by with a C usually end up failing, uh, honestly. Uh, and we don't want people to fail, you know, uh, but we don't want them to pass a class either for the wrong reasons, you know, just because they had, you know, 65% on, or 70% on every single assessment. So they never really actually mastered anything in the class, and yet they get a C, which says they have baseline competency. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. So you see these grades shift around, and it tends to be very real, very much based on what the student's actual observed work is. I consider that to be a strong positive of all these alternatives. Another byproduct, it sounds like, in many for many professors who try these alternative grading systems, is that their office hours are a little more hopping. Mm-hmm. Because students want to talk. I mean, they want to now that there is something they can do about deficiencies they have in their work. Uh, if something wasn't good enough, you know, imagine you know, put yourself in that situation. I mean, if I'm playing a playing a, a part in a song as a, as a musician, and uh, somebody and the, the 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 guitarist in my band says, "Well, that wasn't. I didn't like that." I mean, it, it's I'm naturally curious to follow up and say, "Okay, what what do I need to do? How do how do I get better at this?" And so the grading system becomes a conversation starter, really, uh, is what this is all about. And office hours, drop-in hours are the place where it happens. And so you get, because students are sort of given permission, I suppose, to talk about their work uh, with the actual realizable hope of doing better in their, in their grades, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the student who knows what's what is going to be up in the professor's grill uh, asking lots of questions about stuff like how do I get better you know what am I missing what do I need to know how come this wasn't what I thought it was that sort of thing rather than I felt like I really worked hard and deserved a 10 out of 12 but you gave me a 6 out of 12 and so this these sort of non-conversations that 
go away because there are no 12s anymore. There's no six, there's no 10. It's just like, is it good enough or isn't it? You have a colleague at your institution at Grand Valley State um, who recently wrote about her experience trying ungrading um, and what um, and and what she's found were some challenges of trying this type of approach as um, she's a, a black woman professor. Um, one thing she notes is that she has always felt pressure to, quote, save the receipts for any work she does because she might get a more skeptical bent or she feels like sometimes in the academy in sometimes. And I guess she feels like grades have been a way to kind of have a system that everyone knows what the different things mean. Um, now she's doing ungrading. It sounds like she's having good experience, but I guess she's, I, I was interested to kind of like ask you about this idea of, um, you know, when you go to these systems, you're also kind of out on a limb a little bit as a potentially as a faculty member. Yeah, that's certainly true. Uh, that's going to be true no matter what sort of deviation from the norm you choose to do, whether it's grading or the simple act of learning in the classroom. Uh, and uh, perhaps that's unavoidable. I mean, the best you can hope for is to advocate for better systems where you work that sort of support rather than punish such things. Um, but certainly, I, I think the, the, the way to go uh, to, do, to, to approach a, a situation like that is to say, Here's what I'm attempting to do. I'm attempting to make the student experience to deepen student learning, to make student learning more real, more authentic, more long-lasting. I'm trying to accomplish the strategic objectives of this university, which happen to be lifelong learning and an empowered educational experience and a culture of educational equity. Those are the three biggies at Grand Valley, and they're, they're very similar in other places as well. And the particular way in which I'm going to try to enact our strategic plan as a university is by tweaking my grading system. Now, I'm going to do it. I'm going to keep my eyes open. I'm going to talk to my students. I'm going to listen to what they say throughout the semester. And we're going to be all on the same page about this. And if it just isn't working, then maybe we'll fold it up and try something else. And I, don't, I, I, I find it hard to believe. I mean, I, I think that if you're going to be okay if you, if you approach it this way. Uh, but you, you're still kind of putting yourself at risk. And unfortunately, there are some people in the academy that are more exposed to this kind of risk than others. I mean, I'm a white male tenured professor. Uh, I mean, I, I've got all the privilege and I can I, I, I can. I am not under the same kind of pressure that my colleague is or a lot of my other colleagues are. Uh, and so my role is to advocate for her and everybody else to try to make this and say, like, look, innovation is normative. This is like what the university was invented for us to innovate. And if we're not doing that, what even are we doing? You know, uh, it, it, it is good with alternative grading and ungrading to know that you that it is the epitome of keeping the receipts uh, because everything a student does to earn their grade is a piece of concrete evidence of growth and learning and you got you got a whole portfolio of that for every student and so if a student uh if somebody comes along and says, like, well, you're just handing out A's, there's no rigor in your class, you can say, here are what my standards are for an A. They're pretty high, and here are the here's a list of all the things that my students have done to earn that A. It's legit. Okay, it's not a great inflation thing. Or if a student fails, you can point to their work or lack thereof and just say, this is why the student failed. Okay, they just didn't ever produce really any sufficient evidence of learning in here. It all becomes about, it's like teaching like a scholar, right? You're teaching with a focus on evidence of something. Okay, not just like I felt you got eight out of twelve on that exam, or or I, I just like the way you look, or whatever the case may be. Uh, another equity issue, you know, there's rampant bias in, in numerical grading. 
So, uh, yeah, I, I feel I feel the risk. I mean, I, I was there once myself, uh, and so uh, I would say, you know, just be prepared for that. But you can frame you can frame your efforts in a way uh, that show that your heart is with students. Your heart is to make the university better, and you can also say, look, if I've got clear evidence this isn't working, at least I was trying, and I'll take it back to the drawing board and try something else later on. Okay, I don't think anybody can ask for more than that from a professor. What is at stake here broadly? You know, it's it, it's a teaching innovation, and we talk a lot about this. But but we're also interested at the Ed Search podcast on like the bigger narratives of and the bigger you know kind of what's at stake for education broadly because this could be applied in the you know K twelve setting too. Why why does this matter? Well, I think that's, a, that's the question, isn't it, Jeff? I mean, I think this matters because we want education to mean something. I mean, we want the, the education kind of hinges at this point on certification. Like, how do you know if a person is, is truly educated at a college degree? Well, you look at their diploma or you look at their transcripts. So you look at these transcripts and you say, you ask yourself, what information is this conveying about this person? And, you know, right now, if we think about traditional grading, we have to say we have no idea what this information is conveying. This is a serious problem because, you know, a person who, let's say you're in a class and the class, it's hyper traditional. So the entire course grade is based on three 100 point tests that are all averaged together. Okay, And you have one student that gets a zero on the first one an 80 on the second one, and a 100% on the third one, okay? And on the other hand, you've got another student that has 60, 60, and 60, okay? Both of those students have 180 points out of 300. That's a 60%. That's a D minus, okay? What story, though, is, is told about these students? They both look exactly the same. I mean, uh, the first student has a much different journey than the second student does. The first student... Who knows why she got the zero? I mean, maybe it was because she legit didn't know the material at all. Uh, But maybe it was because she had COVID or maybe she had to miss class because she was taking care of a family member or had a job or something like that. Uh, That that zero tells you literally nothing about her, her skill just looking at the number. And yet it has to be averaged in with these two other grades that are actually really good, 80 and 100. Uh, but she gets a D minus for the class, whereas the other guy, uh, the guy 60-60-60, uh, never really accomplishes anything. It's just like, oh, I'm 60% or 60% of what would be a good question, too. Uh, and, but they, they, they collide in the transcript. Okay, They both get the same course grade. What's at stake is whether that course grade, which we take such pains to create and file away and, and, and curate, actually conveys any information at all uh, about the student, okay? Or is it just like some random number average, like taking a bunch of zip codes and averaging them together? I mean, those are numbers, but if you average them together, it means nothing. So what's at stake is the kind of the very sort of, you know, epistemological basis of a course transcript, and <laughs> which is the currency of the modern workplace, I mean, in, in some sense, right? If, if, we, if we stop and think for long enough about this, it becomes really unsettling because you think, wow, I, have, I can see, like, take a person's report card or transcript out and see A, B, B plus, C minus, whatever, and it's telling me a story that may not have actually happened, 
<laughs> and yet we're basing everything on the story, the narrative that we get from the transcript. And this is a very serious problem. And so moving to an alternative system where you know, the person looking at that transcript may not be able to directly say, oh, yeah, that student can do this, 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 and that. But there's a pathway. Uh, like if I were an employer and I were working with a university that did nothing but ungrading, for example, there's no such university yet. But I could, if I were really curious and inquisitive enough, I could look at that student's B grade, for example, in differential equations and pick up the phone and call the professor and say, like, what did the student do to get a B? And that professor could actually tell me what the person did. Uh, so there's a whole other conversation about these alternative transcript concepts uh, that would that's a very interesting sort of dovetail conversation to have with with grading. Uh, so it, it's it's a it, again it is about the information content of a transcript for me, and that is like the very uh, the, the the at the very foundation of this whole enterprise that we're involved with. I love that you're a person who really appreciates math as a math professor. <laughs> and you're, it's like you just want good data, um, uh, meaningful uh, data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't want any more false negatives. And I don't want any more false positives. I mean, if this were, I, I, I kind of think of grading like every time you give an assessment, it's like a little mini experiment that you run with students. Like the null hypothesis in that experiment is the student didn't learn anything from being in class. And so I have to get enough information to either reject the null hypothesis or fail to reject the null hypothesis. And right now I'm getting type one, type two error, or not right now, but back in the day uh, using points, it was just nothing but type one and type two error. I was constantly concluding that students, you know, did actually learn something when they hadn't and concluding that they hadn't actually learned something when they did. And it's like, this is enough. I mean, haven't we seen enough of this? <laughs> There's got to be something better. It's got to be a better design of an experiment than this. Well, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, thank you for talking through these big issues with us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Always a pleasure. While Robert Talbert has been interested in these alternative grading systems for a while, more and more educators have been picking up on the idea in the last couple of years. One reason is the COVID-19 pandemic, which sparked many educators to retool their courses for online delivery. And in the process, they were suddenly rethinking lots of things about how they teach. And students do find the grading system stressful. A 2019 survey by the Pew Research Center found that teenagers said the pressure to get good grades was their biggest cause for stress. One question is whether these alternative systems will catch on in a substantial way. And if so, how can these new systems best balance the need to motivate students to do their strongest work and the desire to help students revise and improve and master the material as they go? As Talbert points out, it's all a pretty fundamental part of the education process. So it's worth thinking about making sure it's up to date. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. If you like the show, please follow the Ed Surge Podcast wherever you listen. And you can sign up for our free podcast newsletter to get show notes and dive deeper into the topics that we cover. Just go to edsurge.com and click on the word newsletters at the top right. This episode was put together by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at JRYoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. I had editing help by Rebecca Koenig and our music this episode is by Komaku. We will be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening. <laughs>